I'm Sinead O'Carroll, editor of The Journal. Before we start this episode, I wanted to ask you something. When the survivors of mother and baby homes felt dismissed by the state's formal investigation, your presenter, Orla Ryan, was really motivated to produce even more reliable, meaningful, independent journalism about what happened to the women and children in these institutions. Our aim has been to provide them with the space to tell you about their own lives, in their own words, using their own voices. So, over the past year, we've been making Redacted Lives, which, as you've been hearing, does just that. It has been a big commitment from our newsroom, but one that we hope you are finding worthwhile and that you believe should be heard by as many people as possible. Now, we're asking listeners like you to support us. A donation will go a long way in helping us to keep doing work like this. Please go to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute and choose between a monthly or one-off contribution. Redacted Lives is a six-part documentary series by The Journal that tells the real story of mother and baby homes. From what happened within, to how the state continues to deny survivors access to information, proper redress and ownership of their true stories. The episodes explore the lives of the mothers and their children as they search for answers in their own voices and their own words. We're following some of those families on their journeys of possible reconnections, as well as talking to relatives seeking justice for their loved ones who have died. We're also putting the state's botched attempt at righting these wrongs under the microscope, and we'll seek answers from the minister responsible about redress and proper burial for the 796 children in Tume. Episode 5 I Hear You've Been Looking For Me this episode contains sensitive topics such as substance abuse. I'm 64 years of age. I was told all my life to forget about things. And my daughter Nicola, I could never forget about her. And I'm sick and tired and weary of every door being closed on me and more or less to be told to shut up and go away. I'm sick of people deciding what they think or what they thought was the best thing for me and never asked. Ireland has a long history of incarcerating people deemed problematic, including those who challenge societal norms by becoming pregnant outside marriage. For many years, the so-called solution was to hide these people away, to not speak about them to pretend they did not exist. In the case of women sent to mother and baby homes, if and when they re-entered society, months, or sometimes even years later, they were expected to not talk about what happened to them. These women were expected to never speak of their child, let alone express a desire to reconnect with them. Some do indeed go on to meet their now adult children, and form a relationship, but some are rejected by their child for many different reasons, while others are still searching and hoping. So far in this series we've heard from three mothers who passed through the system, Monica, Terry and Maria. We also met Mary, who was born into the system and ended up in an industrial school. In this episode, they will tell us if they have found who they've been looking for. We will also hear from adopted people about their search for their parents and information about their identity. As we learned in episode two, losing her daughter derailed Monica's life. She turned to alcohol and medication to numb her pain. Monica says she was a functioning alcoholic. Her children were always fed and clothed but she wasn't fully present for several years. She finally got sober over 20 years ago, just after the birth of her youngest daughter, Ashling. Monica's brother convinced her to go to rehab when Ashling was a newborn. She says the prospect of losing another child gave her more than enough motivation and arrangements were made for her to go to a treatment centre. The tablets and the drink, they took off my life. And Ashling was three three months 
my brother had a chat with me that if I didn't do something, she'd be taken off me. That's when I decided I've had enough. I couldn't, there was no way out. So he rang Tabor Lodge for me and I got into Tabor Lodge the following week. Ashing went into foster care, went into Tabor Lodge for, I think it was eight weeks. And I'll tell you something, it was the best day's work I ever done. And I came out. I didn't touch a tablet, I didn't touch a drink. I still have Ashling. She was the lifesaver. She was a lifesaver for me in one sense. She became the best thing that ever happened to me. And she just, I suppose she just changed, changed my life. At various stages in her search for Nicola, Monica was, unknowingly at the time, given incorrect information. Monica says she was rebuffed by social workers every time she asked if she could contact her daughter and possibly set up a meeting. So the right time was never, ever going to be for them. And I think the right time came a few times for me and I stopped again because the courage goes and comes back. And... I found out after about where she was living and this was just a bit of work that my daughter's just done and myself and we found out that she never did go up the country. She never did have a brother. Her father wasn't a plumber. She lived an hour's drive, if not less, away from me. She had a sister. Monica believes she was deliberately given incorrect information about Nicola and her adopted family in a bid to prevent her finding her daughter. Like Terry, after Monica felt she had exhausted official channels trying to get information, she took a different route. Two of her daughters, Caroline and Sarah, did some research online and found a group that helped mothers and adopted people get information. They gave the group the details their mother had received about Nicola over the years. A few weeks later, Monica arranged to meet a member of the group. Caroline made the arrangements and we met in the the Red Comb Hotel in Dublin. And she came in and she came in with all a birth cert for Nicola, where she lived, a picture of where she lived, her husband's name, how many children she had, where she worked, what she did for a living. And I got that information within three weeks, maybe a month. Monica isn't exactly sure how the woman managed to find out this information about Nicola. Over the years, many people have sought out the help of similar groups in a bid to get details about their child or parent. Members of these groups are often impacted by adoption themselves and want to help other people in their search. The process may seem somewhat unusual, but it's actually quite common. After that meeting in the Red Cow Hotel, Sarah realised she has mutual Facebook friends with Nicola. They live relatively close to each other, and there's a chance they've been in the same pub at the same time. Monica desperately wants to see Nicola, who now goes by a different name, but does not want to go against her daughter's wishes. Monica doesn't know if her daughter wants to meet her, She spoke to social workers a few times over the years about making contact with Nicola, but was told it wasn't the right time. Maybe Nicola doesn't want to meet Monica, but there is also a possibility that Nicola has no idea her mother has been searching for her, on and off, for more than 40 years. I'd like Nicola to know how it happened, why it happened, the help I didn't get. And at the end of the day, that I had no other choice to do what I'd done because I'd done it for her. If I'd done it for myself, I'd have kept her. Despite all the setbacks to date, Monica is still hopeful she will meet Nicola one day. Definitely. I know I will. I know I will. Whenever it comes about, whether it be from her or maybe from me, getting the courage up again to move another step. Hopefully we're all being 
shoved back. But I have the support of all my family today. And I know that we'll all get to meet her. Because they have another sister. And I have another daughter. That was non-existent for years and years because you weren't allowed to talk about it. It wasn't part of a conversation. It was hidden, forgotten about. But I never forgot about it. Never. And I know I will meet her someday. Monica's story is one without an ending. But not every story with finality is tied up with a neat bow. Mary Harney didn't have to wait as long as others to reconnect with her mother, Peggy. However, even when a family reunites, it doesn't always go to plan. Earlier in the series, Mary shared her experience of growing up in an industrial school in Cork. When she was a child, the nun said her mother was dead. But when she was a teenager, she discovered this was a lie. As we heard in episode one, a priest, Father Vincent, helped Mary locate Peggy. When Mary was 17 and living in London, she met her mother, stepfather and two stepsisters. This was obviously a huge moment in her young life. She was always surrounded by people in the industrial school, but never had a family of her own. And now, all of a sudden, she had parents and siblings. Peggy wanted to make up for lost time, and soon after their first meeting, she invited Mary to move to Cardiff to live with her newfound family. The teenager was delighted and packed her bags. But moving into a small home with people who were essentially strangers, after a lifetime in institutions, wasn't an easy transition to make. And then reality. I won't say snuck in. Reality hit. A house, two up, two down. Working class neighborhood. Small little yard. My mother worked all day, every day. Oh, the walls closed in on me. Uh, uh, since I was uh, in the house in Cork, I'd never lived in a small house. Mary says she was institutionalised and couldn't get used to this new way of life. She joined the British Army and also worked abroad for some time, but would always come back to visit her family. Despite the initial difficulties they faced when trying to reconnect, Mary and Peggy went on to develop a relationship. Well, I had no idea what a mother-daughter dynamic is. I still don't. I mean, I see it, but I don't feel it. And that's what I wanted to feel. I thought I should feel, you know, and it wasn't there. But I loved my mother. And then, you know, there were times when I would go home for longer than a couple of nights and stay there for a while, and we would sit by the fire in the dark, you know, in an evening after she watched her TV shows. And then she'd sometimes begin to talk. But usually it was in the glow of the fire as opposed to full lights on. Or she would tell me her story then and I got to know who she was and she became my heroine and has always been my heroine. She would tell me about her mother and her father and... um, the big group of cousins and aunts and uncles she had over in Waterford and her childhood, how she was put into the industrial school because both her parents died. At, you know, when she was about 12, she spent four years. Uh, so between us, we spent a lot of time in institutions. But And we grew fonder and fonder of each other, you know, as years went by. And part of that was because we didn't live with each other. Mary and her mother were in each other's lives for about 30 years, until Peggy died in 2014. They talked about many topics, but Peggy was always reluctant to tell Mary about her father. Although, shortly before Peggy died, she did confirm his name. She would not talk about it. That's one topic she said she would take to the grave. I did find out a couple of things, but... Basically, the full information is in the grave with my mummy. I mean, I think I know a name, but I haven't done any DNA to confirm it. Stepfather told me first, and then I asked mummy to confirm it 
not long before she died, and it upset her, but she said, yeah. But because she was so upset, we didn't go beyond it. See, you know, my mother wouldn't talk about it, so one has to wonder if this was a boyfriend, if it was a coercion, if it was a rape, if, you know, we don't know. And we can't force that kind of information from either the children or the the parents, you know, the mothers. Despite the questions she still has about her father, to which she will likely never get an answer, Mary is grateful for the time she had with her mother. She knows that many people born into the system don't get a chance to reconnect with either parent. Sometimes it is immensely difficult to even make that initial contact to find out if reconnecting is possible. Terry Harrison already told us about the great lengths she went to in a bid to find her son. As we heard in episode one, Terry exhausted so-called traditional routes to find Niall, who now goes by a different name. So she turned to a private investigator. Terry received information about Niall, but a crushing disappointment came with it. All the PI did for me was go and find out where he was. A lot of money was to be paid out, £300, but I didn't care. And he said to me, some people don't want to be found, Terry. And I have to tell you, he said, if the case is whatever, um, I'm obliged by law to let you know that. And I said, fair enough. You couldn't have been more honest. And I remember the morning he came back and rang the door, but I could see him. It was him and my heart was in my mouth and I kept saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I knew by his face when he sat down and he had a brown envelope and he pushed it towards me. He said, there's the information you need to know about your son and that's all I can give you. And I'm terribly sorry to say to you, I don't think your son wants to be found. That's all. And then he also pushed the money back. He said, I can't touch a penny of your money. He said, because I didn't provide what you wanted so much and all this. And he was so nice. The PI deduced that Niall didn't want to be contacted, but he was still able to give Terry some crucial details about her son's life. Just his name, where he lived, what he studied. I could have done a lot more with it, but I let it rest. I said no. I respect it at the time. My only concern was I found out he was okay, he was alive. I was told he had gone to college, but now I knew for certain. I didn't trust nobody, Arla. I didn't believe anything of any of their mouths. And most of the women like me are the same. Why would we? They lied, lied, lied to us. You know, they manipulated our lives, they destroyed our lives. Many years have passed since the PI told Terry that Niall didn't want to talk to her. She is hopeful that he may have changed his mind. But she is also scared to reach out again, in case he hasn't. Terry speaks publicly about her story in the hopes that one day Niall, or someone close to him, will hear it. She wants him to know she did not give him away. She tried so hard to keep him. You see, any time I do these things, I do it for a reason and a purpose, hoping he'll see it, he'll hear it. And I always talk about his, his birthday, um, you know, the 15th of October, 1973. So I'm Niall's mother till the day I die, and nobody will tell me any different. To my last breath, I'm his mother. You know, the person who was privileged to rear my child, she did the mothering, but she doesn't know what it's like to feel him move and grow inside her own body, which I'm sure she would love him to. I'm not saying people were bad, but it does worry me that so many thousands never questioned the thousands of babies available. Maria Arbuckle also spent decades looking for her son. At times she thought she might never find Paul, but her story is one that can give hope. Sometimes, seemingly out of nowhere, things can start to fall into place. As we heard in episode one, after many failed attempts to find Paul, there was a breakthrough in 2021. 
an inquiry into mother and baby homes in Northern Ireland uncovered his details. Maria wrote her son a letter and sent it to a social worker who would in turn give it to Paul. A social worker had also been in touch with Paul to tell him they had found his mother. However, before he actually received Maria's letter, he looked her up online. He found media interviews she had done over the years and saw Facebook posts where she talked openly about her search to find him. He didn't want her to wait a minute longer. That night, I get a friend request on Facebook, and it's a woman from Derry. So the first thing was, in my head, I thought, is this his partner? And then because she was from Derry, my hometown, I'm like, no, it's probably something to do with the mother and baby's homes. Somebody's looking for advice of me. So... I accepted the friend request and I woke up the next morning to a message saying, I hear you've been looking for me. I'm Paul Raymond Arbuckle, your son. I was shocked, but pleasantly shocked about it. It was like, oh my God, 40 years of nothing and all of a sudden here is a message and this guy saying, I'm your son on it. Over the next few days, Maria and Paul exchanged messages. Maria now lives in England, but was in Derry visiting family at the time and decided to extend her stay. Paul invited Maria to come to his house that weekend. We went in this house and he, I remember he stood on the stairway for a while and we were in the kitchen, but we could see his legs on the stairway. He's like, he's not coming down, he's not going to come down. And then he came down, and the first thing we done was hugged, and this hug went on for, it seemed like, forever. How did it feel to hold him again after so long? Well, I wasn't holding a baby anymore, I was holding up a grown man then. <laughs> and because it was his birthday, the I brought his birthday presents was because I didn't know whether we'd just see each other that day and what would happen. And one of his presents was the photograph of me and him when he was two days old. And he sat there then the whole time that we were there, he sat with his photograph in his hands. Maria and Paul instantly connected. They could see themselves in each other and despite not meeting for 40 years, felt at ease in each other's presence. There's so many things connect us. Even my other sons, I could see bits of my other sons in him. Looks-wise, two of them support the same teams. Him and the youngest son has the same personality, but he's very quietly spoken, and so is the the youngest one, with the other two's just out there. It's just mad, dude. So he came over to England and they actually see them together and the reaction, it's like they've never been apart, it's like they've known each other, but that's what the kids says to him, we knew you all our lives, that you were talked about the whole way through our lives. Maria is very grateful that she and her other children have developed a close relationship with Paul, who now goes by a different name. She knows that success stories like this are not that common, but her advice for anyone who is struggling to find a child is to keep going. Never give up. Like I've thought for all these years it would never happen, it's never going to happen. And then all of a sudden it just happens like that. Keep going. That's all I could say. I think somewhere in your life, it comes to a stage that you do want to know who you are. Tens of thousands of people in Ireland pass through the mother and baby home system. Countless families have a daughter, a sister or a mother who spent time in one of these institutions, whether their relatives realise it or not. On the other side of this equation are these women's children many of whom were adopted. As Maria just told us, there comes a time when you want to know who you are. 
But that journey to get answers is often just as fraught for the children as it is for their mothers. With legal adoptions, the correct documentation doesn't always exist. And illegal adoptions pose a whole other set of complications. People's names, dates of birth and other details were sometimes deliberately changed on official documents. In many cases, a child's adoptive parents were listed as their biological parents. In some scenarios, it is believed that children were incorrectly listed as dead, despite being alive and well, before they were adopted, often to the United States. In truth, we don't know the scale of illegal adoption in Ireland, and possibly never will. The Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes was not specifically asked to examine adoption, but it did gather some evidence about consent and foreign adoptions. In its final report, the Commission said it found little evidence of forced adoption or illegal birth registrations. However, an independent review carried out on behalf of the Irish government by Marion Reynolds, a former Deputy Director of Social Services in Northern Ireland, found evidence there could have been thousands of illegal adoptions here. In March 2022, Professor Conor O'Mahony, Ireland's Special Rapporteur in Child Protection at the time, recommended that a state inquiry into illegal adoptions be established. A number of experts, like Katrina Crow, believe another inquiry is the best chance we have of finding out the truth. I can understand why people are tired and cynical and disillusioned and exhausted and bitter and furious after what they've gone through with the first commission. It would have to be designed differently, uh, perhaps more like the, the Academic Commission of Inquiry in the North of Ireland, which talked to very few people but still had very good protocols uh, about how to deal with survivors, particularly in terms of consultation with them, uh, editing their, their testimony, preserving their testimony, all of that, which gave people, I think, a sense of security that they were going to be taken seriously. If an inquiry into illegal adoption is established, it may be difficult to get everyone on board. Given the outcome of the most recent commission, there is little appetite among some people for yet another inquiry. Marguerite Penrose was one of the 500-plus survivors who gave evidence to the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes via the Confidential Committee. As we heard in Episode 4, the evidence given to this particular committee didn't hold as much weight as the testimony given to the Investigation Committee. Marguerite spent her early years in St. Patrick's Mother and Baby Home in Dublin before being fostered and illegally adopted by a family. She's not sure if she could face another commission. From the outcome of this commission, would anybody really go to give evidence now and feel that they're going to be heard when they know the backlash from this one? Like, personally speaking, I wouldn't take part in another commission, I don't think, because I'd just be saying, well, the same thing's going to happen again. Marguerite was born in St. James's Hospital in Dublin in 1974, before being sent to St. Patrick's Institution. She is mixed race and was born with severe scoliosis and missing three ribs. For these reasons, she spent her early life in a room separate from the other children. Yeah, there was a reject room. So that would have been where the likes of myself would have been. A, because I was a person of colour and B, probably because I had a disability. That was probably one of the hardest things I think I had to hear. So although, you know, yes, I was fostered and adopted by an amazing family, nobody should have to start their life like that. Marguerite believes she was not adopted as a baby because of her skin colour and health issues. However, the Penrose family started to foster her when she was four years old, eventually making the arrangement permanent. When it comes to the likes of mixed race or black or person of colour, there definitely seems to be that we were there longer. I was blessed. I didn't end up in industrial school. But I think if I had stayed there any longer, I think when I was four, that's where I would have eventually ended up. So... Thankfully, the Penroses came and took me. So I was really, really, you know, it was great that I didn't have to go to that journey because I, I don't know what my life would have been had I gone that direction, you know. The commission said it found a lack of evidence that mixed race people were discriminated against. Marguerite says that this finding, aside from being insulting, makes no sense. I just felt like it's a, a kick in the teeth to you because, you know, it did exist. There's like discrimination everywhere. So, of course, in a place like that, there's going to be. People have spoken up and said, I know this happened. 
I can tell you the room, they can describe it. So the information wasn't made up. Nobody's going to say that. A mass load of people aren't going to say that if it wasn't true. Yes, people nowadays aren't responsible for what happened years ago. But we need to be able to stand up and say, yes, this did happen. We accept it. You know, we're sorry. Um, what can we do to make things better? You know, how can we um, go forward so something like this never happens again? A few years before Marguerite was sent to St. Patrick's mother and baby home, another child was spending his early weeks in the same institution. He's asked that we don't use his real name, so we're calling him Chris. He left St. Pat's much sooner than Marguerite, being adopted as a baby. Chris's parents told him he was adopted when he was six or seven. It was never a secret when he was a child, but he knew it made him different from his friends. It was one of those things where I suppose growing up, you realise that nobody ever says you look like your mother or your father. That's the one thing that's very absent. And it's only when you hear other people say it to to parents or to children that you realise, oh, no one ever says that to me. And that that I suppose I've always had that. That's just a thing in the back of my mind, you know, and that I don't look like any of my siblings, nor, nor would I expect it to. The fact that Chris was adopted never came up at school until it was time for his confirmation. He and his classmates had to bring in their birth certificates and the teacher pointed out to the class that Chris's cert was different because he was adopted. He was like being outed at school as a child. But again, I didn't, because I'd been somewhat immune from all of that, um, it didn't make any real difference at that time. In that immediate moment, I didn't think too much of it. But it's when then the other kids started talking about it and actually saying, I remember one guy, and and I, I know his name very clearly, and I know exactly where I was standing when he said it. I remember he was alluding to something that I couldn't do because you're a bastard. I was like, what, what, what's a bastard? I genuinely didn't know what that meant. And he was like, you're illegitimate. And I was going, what does that mean? And he was like, you're adopted. And I remember that thread. And it was that point that I suppose that I, I, I realized that there was an otherness to it. Um, and I guess that was just Catholic Ireland uh, of the time, you know, is the fact that you were a product of sin. As a young adult, Chris made some initial inquiries about his birth parents but paused his search in the mid-1990s after his adoptive mother asked him to. He moved to London a year later. In the late 90s, he contacted the Eastern Health Board again and remained in touch with social workers over the following years. Five years later, a social worker dropped a bombshell. His parents were actually married when he was given up for adoption. I still don't know how they found this out um, because nobody will tell me. My reaction was probably, oh, oh, okay, right, fair enough. If that's the way it is, grand. I think at the time I probably didn't appreciate the enormity of what they were telling me and enormity from my personal experience as in my, my life. And I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. That was the other thing. I, you know, I couldn't go to my, my adoptive parents and say, actually, because that would be telling them that I was pursuing, that, that I was still pursuing the, the search. During this meeting, Chris was told his adoption may not have been legal. His biological mother had apparently not disclosed the fact she was married to his father at the time of his adoption. This was a lot of information to process at once, out of the blue. I, I'm still, I still struggle to put words to, to this to articulate how angry I still get about this. I was asked if I wanted to challenge the validity of an adoption order. I had just been hit with the news that my adoption was invalid, uh, legally speaking. And then to be asked, you know, w- would you want to challenge it? I had no opportunity to even process what was going on. If I challenged it, would it mean that my name would change? Would I not be, would my brothers and sisters not be my sisters and brother anymore? You know, those sorts of really fundamental things that no one said, right, these are the implications. It was kind of a, do you want to challenge it? No, not right now. It was one of those moments where you, you try to process an immense amount of information. And as poor as my memory might be at times, there are certain things I do remember. And I remember at the time going, but that would mean you'd prosecute my birth parents. That's what I'd been told, you see, that they would prosecute my birth parents um, or my birth mother, sorry, specifically, uh, because she 
apparently had signed an affidavit. I didn't know what an affidavit was. So I didn't quite understand what I was being asked. And I think a natural reaction would always be no, perhaps with the, in brackets, until I know a lot more and understand what this actually means. Chris recently discovered that his parents got married a few weeks before he was born. He finally got their marriage certificate in August. His parents went on to have several other children. He doesn't know why he was adopted and says his understanding of the situation is constantly evolving as he slowly receives more information. Like Chris, Marguerite's understanding of her own identity is still evolving, but for different reasons. She had to go through various surgeries when she was younger due to her health issues, but despite this, she had a very happy childhood. She has a wonderful relationship with her parents, Nolene and Michael, and her sister, Kira. They were always open to her looking for biological parents, but she wasn't ready to do this until a few years ago. Marguerite had a serious health scare in 2015, suffering from respiratory failure. It was the incentive she needed to start searching for her birth parents. I did kind of say to myself, I'm getting older now. After that health scare, I don't want to, to die not knowing. No, or not knowing that I tried. Yes, you could try and maybe never get the information. But at least I could say to myself, you know, I tried and I got this information. I didn't get that information. So that was kind of maybe what spurred me on a bit. In late 2020, Marguerite was assigned a caseworker from Tusla, Margaret, who began to look for information. Due to COVID-19 restrictions in place at the time, their first few meetings happened online. In one of these early conversations, Margaret had to deliver life-changing news. I have always felt like I was talking to somebody that really did listen and really did understand. And of course, they have restrictions. They can't just say, well, here's all your information, off you go. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. Um, and she did have to tell me that my uh, my mum had already passed away. So again, that was on Zoom. That was very difficult, you know. So and I'm sure it was difficult for her, you know, to have to tell somebody that not in person, you know. Marguerite's birth mother, Elizabeth, died in 2014. Marguerite was saddened by the news, but says she had a feeling that her mother had already passed. Since she was a child, she was aware that she also had half siblings but she didn't know anything else about them. Before I was adopted, my social worker had said that I had siblings. Never said whether they were male or female, never said how many. So this was always in the back of my head. So I was like, well, you know what? I know I have siblings, so I knew my mum had passed away. So I was like, well, you know, I'm still looking to meet my family, you know, be it aunties, uncles, cousins. Obviously, siblings were number one on the list. Marguerite's caseworker continued to look for information about her siblings. But this process was slowed down due to the pandemic and the cyber attack on the Irish Health Service in May 2021. But there was a major development last November. Margaret found an address for one of Marguerite's brothers. She wrote him a letter, not saying that his sister was looking for him, but asking him to get in touch. Almost instantly, he responded to say he was willing to meet he and Marguerite started to exchange messages. So I said, I can't even remember what I wrote, you know, in the first one. But then they sent me back lovely emails. And I knew straight away, I was like, they sound really nice now, you know. And again, I think I was still in shock about it. And then we sent a few back and forth. And then we got to meet initially for the first time just before Christmas. So that was brilliant. That was amazing. After exchanging a few emails, Marguerite met her brothers in December 2021. I was anxious, but not... I knew everything was going to be okay. But, you know, I was actually physically going to see these people. Again, we were still in COVID time, so we had to wear masks. You know, we had to have the the distance between us. We couldn't hug. So all this is playing in your head. So it was probably very clinical, our meet. Um, I remember every detail, you know. I didn't shed one tear when I met them. I just wanted to remember absolutely everything. Now I was shaking, they slagged me over it. I was very, very nervous when they came in, um, but after a few minutes then, but I think it was just the whole waiting so long, you know, the anticipation. But we just got on, like, so much similarities. Personality-wise, it's funny because when I came home, you know, and my sister was over at the house waiting to hear with my mom and dad, you know, 
how did it go? God loved them. They had to wait for me. I was gone ages. They were sitting at home sweating it out, you know. They were saying, well, what are they like? You know, I know you've exchanged letters. And I was like, they're exactly, we have the same personalities. And I had pictures. So I was showing my sister and she's like, oh my God, you're so alike. You know, we never expected that. So it was all this, everything was just so positive, you know, and I was on an absolute high. Over the last few months, Marguerite has met her brother's wives and children, as well as other relatives. She speaks to her brothers almost daily, and they meet regularly. Marguerite is still trying to find her birth father. She believes he is Zambian, and met her mother while training at the Kura Army Base in Kildare in the early 1970s. But most of her questions about him remain unanswered, at least for now. Chris's path to finding his birth family has been more complicated. But unlike Marguerite, he has met his biological father. After years of sporadic back and forth between Chris and officials, there was a breakthrough. Social workers had also been in touch with his father, who had now agreed to meet. His mother didn't want to attend, but it was a start. Chris had waited so long for this day. It's going to sound ridiculous, like choosing what to wear. That was such a big thing about choosing. Like, do I do I make myself look successful? Would that make them like me more? Or do I do I wear a suit? Or do I just go in my casuals? The, the, the really basic things, but they're so amplified because you're. I was trying to make sure that I made a good impression and that he would see somebody as a son who he could be proud of. A meeting between the father and son was arranged by social workers in Dublin. And I looked at him and I started crying because I was the image of him and it was the first time I'd ever met anyone in person who I look like. And uh, again, it sounds very grand and it's not meant to. It was just that, wow, he's real. He's real. And that was the big thing. It was like, he's real. This is real. This is actually happening. Um, Almost, I guess I was feeling quite surreal in the situation. And we hugged. And then I saw that he he got a little bit emotional. But I think his was relief. Because he was, he told me he was terrified coming to meet me. He hadn't been to Dublin very often in his life. Um, it was a big thing for him to travel all the way up. This was a huge moment for Chris and his father, who both approached it with trepidation, unsure of how the other would react. Chris's father was surprised there was even a hug. And I remember him just moving back and saying, "I, I, I thought, I thought you were going to punch me." And I think, and he said, yeah, he said something like, and you would have been within your rights to do that or something like that. And it, it, I mean, that was quite telling in the sense of, again, the guilt perhaps on their side. You see, for me at that point, they had nothing to be guilty of. First of all, I knew that the adoption wasn't completely legitimate, but I always try and always have tried to view things from somebody else's perspective. I always try and do that. The two men made small talk. Chris wanted to ask why he was adopted, particularly as his parents got married before he was born. But he was scared to rock the boat on what he assumed would be the first meeting of many. The connection was so new and fragile. He didn't want to break it by asking any probing questions. No, and I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous. But at the time, I just so wanted him to accept me that I didn't, I wasn't going to ask any questions that might be, that might put him off me. I thought wrongly that it might be the start of something. And I thought, well, actually, you wouldn't go in with all those questions at the start. But it really was small talk. You know, it was... I, I said, I remember asking things like, do you smoke? No, I've never smoked. I was no, I'm a smoker. And, and there, were th- there were those kind of superficial things. I didn't ask about all the, the stuff that I really, really wanted to ask. I just wrongly assumed there'd be plenty of time for me to, to find out those things in, in due course. One thing his father said at this meeting seemed like a throwaway remark at the time. 
but has gained more meaning in the years since then. Chris mentioned he was gay, prompting his father to say that one of his relatives was very homophobic. I don't know if it's true, and really it's a shite excuse to give. Sorry, but that's just how I see it. It's like, you know, I'm your son. You shouldn't care what somebody who is married into the family thinks above your own loyalty to your own flesh and blood. At the time, it hit me quite hard because I realized that actually I did realize what was what was what was happening, which is that a wall was being built uh, to almost kind of say like you live your life, but over there. And that was him warning me off. I know at the time I was like, oh, OK, I didn't realize. But what it was, was he was he was putting in walls. After this meeting, he never heard from his father again. Chris tried to instigate contact once or twice, but it was no use. Many adopted people never find out who their biological parents are. Some do reconnect with their parents, siblings or other relatives and go on to form a relationship. Others, like Chris, are rejected for a second time. Sometimes they're given a reason, whether it's true or not. Sometimes. All they get is silence. Despite this, Chris has not given up on meeting his siblings. A few years ago, he found a person on Facebook who he thought was his sister. This is the weird thing. I know where she works. I know her children's names, all these sorts of things. And I always feel very uncomfortable saying that because it makes me sound like a bit of a stalker. Um, But it's not. It's just that, that search for the truth, I suppose, and trying to find out who you are and, uh, and your background. And when I found her, I just looked at my wife. Well, she, she looks like a lovely person and um, I would share some values that are similar to me. But what I didn't realise until about four years ago, it's only that recently that I was looking at her a photo one day and then I saw the guy who was standing beside her and I was like, oh my God, that's not my birth sister. He's my birth brother. And it was that point because he looks exactly the same as me. Like, if you put the two of us in a photo, I think people might have trouble at times distinguishing. Uh, and, and therefore, that's what I'm saying, it's almost like a drip feed of facts that you get slowly over successive years. I was able to just go into Facebook and look at their friends and type in my surname and identify the friends who they had who had a similar surname and then be able to go, okay, yeah, That person is my brother. That person is uh, one of my sisters. Chris has contemplated sending a message to one of his siblings. On several occasions, he has written one. And I've never yet been brave enough to press that send button. That's probably the biggest problem, is what do you say? You want to say, hi, I'm your brother. I'm your big brother. And um, your parents gave me away when I was a baby and I'd like to be a part of your life. Sorry. There's no right thing to write there. There's no, sorry. Um, And do you understand that whatever you do, it's going to lead to pain. I think that's the main thing. Whatever I do will lead to pain and I'll be the one who'll have it. Chris is one of many people who have questions about whether or not their adoption was legal or whether or not they should contact their birth family. Many adopted people have found themselves in a similar conundrum. They've discovered a relative online or been given someone's phone number or address. The urge to contact this person may be overwhelming but the adopted person also doesn't want to upset them or disturb their life. They understand that this person has a right to privacy and may not even know that the adopted person exists. But what if making contact led to their family being reunited? On the other hand, the adopted person could be ignored, chastised for getting in touch, or outright rejected. Chris believes his adoption was illegal and he is considering what to do next. 
Many other people were also illegally adopted, but don't realise. The Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes and the Reynolds Review only scratch the surface on this topic. It seems somewhat inevitable that another inquiry will eventually be set up to examine the scale of illegal adoption in Ireland and how and why the practice happened for so many decades. If and when such an inquiry takes place, some people may find out more about their identity, but others will never know the truth. For mothers like Terry and Monica, their search to reconnect with their firstborn children continues. Their doors will always be open if and when Paul and Nicola want to meet them. In the meantime, everyone we've spoken to has questions they want the Irish government to answer. And we've put them to the minister responsible. Next time on Redacted Lives. What matters is what they do today. And they're doing nothing for us. And we are somebody's mother, grandmother, sister, aunt. Do you agree that a lot of the findings are at odds with people's testimony? There are, I think, key findings where, um, you know, what we have heard from survivors differs from from elements of it, particularly some of those conclusions, yes. Again, it was all this pat on the back, but look what we've done. We've given them the right to their birth certificate. We shouldn't have to ask for that right. Every other Irish citizen has it. Thanks for listening to episode five of Redacted Lives. If you pass through a mother and baby home or another institution and want to share your story, you can contact us in confidence by emailing redactedlives at thejournal.ie. Redacted Lives is created and presented by me, Orla Ryan, and produced by Nikki Ryan. Sinead O'Carroll is the executive producer. Dara Brophy and Christine Bohan were production supervisors. Taz Kelleher is our sound engineer, and design is by Lorcan O'Reilly. With thanks to Laura Byrne, Susan Daly, Adriana Costa, Carl Kinsella, and Jonathan McRae. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in these episodes, you can contact the Samaritans by calling 116-123. Subscribe to Redacted Lives and you can help us keep telling important stories like this by sharing the series with a friend or leaving us a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow all the latest updates on thejournal.ie or via our Twitter page, at Redacted Lives. The next episode in the series will be available next Thursday.